Most of the harmful effects that have happened in history have been when nobody was looking. Think about the camera that happened to be there for the murder of George Floyd. Cameras can change history. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. In the firehouse pressure of 24-7 news since the 1980s, fewer and fewer significant events come to the surface of our memory. The competition for our attention is fierce, and throughout Western history, it's been crucial for certain powerful interests that we forget. Certain events, if they remain conscious, may disturb the trajectory established political power insists on. Thus, erasure of memory is a key component of the recording of memory. As the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. Well, that is true. It was a lot easier for bad actors to get away with the harm they do before cameras. Think about all the lynchings, the typhoon of terror rained down on people of color that happened before the ubiquity of cameras. We'll never know how many unseen George Floyds there have been in American history because no one took a picture, or even better, a video. And one can imagine how upset the killers of George Floyd were, realizing, uh uh-oh, they were being recorded. One can't help but think police nowadays know there could be a camera anytime, place. Is that having an effect? I don't know. I sure hope so. As our guest today, author Phil Allen points out in his new book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency, from MLK to Darnella Frazier, the camera can be a unique and powerful catalyst for political and cultural change, even though we never think about it. Phil Allen Jr. is an artist, poet, storyteller, filmmaker, and social justice and solidarity advocate. He's a former NCAA Division I basketball player. Phil's call to ministry led him to full-time pastoral ministry for 13 years. He's recently transitioned into teaching and is involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting. Boy, there's a lot of work in that field. A PhD, <laughs> a PhD candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary, Phil is also the author of Open Wounds, the story of his grandfather's murder, his family's inherited trauma, and the possibility of reconciliation. That's some heavy lifting you're doing there, Phil. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, unconnected bits of history don't get remembered. Cultures throughout world history have relied on storytelling to bring it together, to bring these bits together, to pass defining identity down through the generations. Storytelling. Memories are much more effectively implanted when the stories told enable listeners to identify. 
Your earlier book, Open Wounds, brings to light something that you and your family have carried as a story, but otherwise remained less known. You lived with that for all your life. How did understanding the power of that story lead you to write this book? Um, when I started with, with my family's story, um, you mentioned something earlier about how many, how many incidents, events, murders are there that weren't recorded. And immediately I, I thought my grandfather was one of them. My great-grandfather was another one. And so thinking about their lives, their stories, my family's story and, and what the, the injustice that, that happened, there was no investigation. Um, it was as if it didn't happen. And the, his death certificate says he fell off the boat. Yeah. It's, just, it's a flat out lie. So my, my, my grandfather, a Navy veteran, will forever be dishonored with the lie on his death certificate because there was a bullet hole in the back of his head based upon my, my great-grandfather when he saw his body and he told my grandmother. Um, mm. So fast forward, when I'm at Sundance, I write this paper after a week of watching films and I just thought about how prophetic the camera as in terms of filmmaking had been. Like these are filmmakers who are telling stories that often don't get told and they're not entertaining. They, they make you grieve. They make you lament. They make you cry if you dare to, to watch them. And so I wrote this paper and it evolved into a, a book. And I felt like after the, the Derek Chauvin trial, the star witness was the camera. And imagine, you know? imagine if there hadn't been a camera there. He'd be just just another, just another, uh, who they could lie about, and I, I can't what? imagine there probably been thousands and thousands of these lies about how the deaths happened, and they get away with it. How how, yeah. how are video recordings like storytelling? You bring up filmmakers; they they tell stories too. How, how mm -hmm. do they? How do video recordings serve similar ends to storytelling? Well, it, it, it's capturing a narrative. Um, it, it's capturing an event that's happening. I mean, you could literally just turn the, your, your phone on and, and, and you could see the drama unfold, whether it's good or bad. Um, the, the difference between the filmmakers and, and ordinary citizens is that democratization of the camera. We all have access to this, this powerful tool now. Um, we may not have the same skills and training as filmmakers to tell a story, but sometimes the story will play itself out just in front of the camera. You don't have to do anything but just record. So I think that that's the, the benefit now that we have is that everyone has access to, to, to not only just record, but you're disrupting one story and presenting another. So, for instance, the story that was told about George Floyd by the Minneapolis P Police Department, if you read their statement, it essentially was a lie about what happened. Of course. But un unknowingly, they, they, they put this statement out, not realizing there was another camera. There was someone recording front and center. Mm. And so when that video went viral, when that video was published on social media, now you have a different narrative disrupting the narrative of power.
And so there's storytelling inherent to to just just hitting record and being present. Wow. When you think about it, you're right. It, it, too often, you know, the courts side with uh, the officials, the police, because they don't have, I mean, who, who are you going to trust? But the, as you say, the democratization of the camera is a powerful tool. And we don't think about that often, but that's what we're talking about today. It's really, really interesting and good to think about. You, you use the word prophetic in your book's title, The Prophetic Lens. Mm -hmm. Central to your understanding of prophetic is theologian Walter Bregeman's work, where he imagined two crucial missions for the prophet, criticizing what he called the royal regime, mm -hmm. and energizing the oppressed and marginalized. Please explain that and, and the title Prophetic Lens. Yes. So I, Prophetic Lens, I, I borrow Bregeman's idea or his definition for prophetic ministry, which is to nurture and nourish and evoke an alternative consciousness. I'm paraphrasing a bit, an alternative consciousness to the dominant consciousness of that royal regime. Because he's drawing from, from Moses and Moses' interaction with um, Pharaoh when the, when the Israelites were enslaved. Um, and so the royal regime has this consciousness, has this power, has this way of being. And, and, and society is kind of influenced heavily by that. Mm. Well, the prophetic ministry comes in to disrupt that, to evoke a new consciousness, an alternative consciousness. Like, wait a minute, this is not right. Something's wrong here. And so the camera, in the, in the event of uh, Darnella Frazier, Capturing what happened with George Floyd and publishing it is now saying to people, look, this is not right. Now, for, for particularly in the black community, we know many of us have had similar experiences, not to that degree, obviously, but similar encounters. Um, and we understand that this is not new. This is not um, a one off. But for the rest of the country, those who aren't familiar or, or privy to, to what goes on um, between African-Americans and police officers and law enforcement, um, it's, it's a new narrative. Now it's forcing people to have to, to think twice about the norm, the, the, the normal consciousness, the status quo. Um, so that's what it means by what, why, I, why I use the prophetic lens in the title. And then the criticizing and energizing, I think the camera when you capture events like that, it inherently criticizes. It, it is, it is when you play, when you record and then you publish, it is a critique in and of itself. It is saying, look at this wrong that's happening. The energizing is the important part. And we saw a hint of that. And I say a hint because some of it has died down since then, but 2020, some of 2020 after George Floyd's um, and Arbery's murder and Breonna Taylor's killing, we saw this, this multi-racial, multi-generational movement globally. So there's an, there's an alternative consciousness stirring up. Now, can it be sustained? Mm -hmm. it, it's only sustained with the work, if the work is sustained. But at least we saw something, something provoked in the masses. Yes, it was. And, and interesting pointing out, you know, what, what a, 
profit is. It's the royals in general in in Western history eh, probably aren't real keen on profits. They tend to no. <laughs> they tend to upset their their narrative, which is the official mm-hmm. narrative. And part of the problem, I think, in terms of remembering, is this you know, 24-7 fire hose of information that we get, we tend to forget. We forget really easily. It's just one thing, then another thing, then another thing. Mm -hmm. People still, of course, of course, remember George Floyd, the name George Floyd. It's it's known across the world. I don't think it'll ever be forgotten. And also some of the other names you mentioned. The name Darnella Frazier is not really known. But who, Mm -hmm. who is she? What is her unique, actually unintentional contribution to history? And please explain, rather than being a bystander, you argue she was a withstander. Tell mm-hmm. us the distinction, please. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I don't really know her person. I don't know her personally at all. Right. Um, but based on her being present in that moment and what she did, here's what I, I can say about her from afar. Um, She's resilient. Um, I don't want to just use the word brave, um, but you can. You can use the word courageous. But resiliency stands out to me because she is watching, along along with others, but she had the presence of mind to not only pull the camera out and record, Mm -hmm. but stay there. Yes. And she watched this man die in front of her. Oh, my God. I cannot imagine. Good for her, though. Thank goodness. And she, she, she was, she was present the entire. So, so that's what I, that's the word I use when I describe this, this young lady who I do not know is resilient. In that moment, she was present and she was resilient. She did not lead, and that's why I use the term withstander. Um, and we need more withstanders. So, the obvious is she's standing with Floyd. Mm-hmm. She's standing with him. She's not just passing by and minding her own business and let me get out of here because I don't want any trouble. Mm-hmm. She among with, with some others stopped and tried their best to get these officers to, to let him up, right. but she stood with, but also withstanding has to do is, is tied to resistance because again, it takes courage to record the, the, the police officers when oftentimes people would be afraid and they would stand back, they would leave, they might stop recording if they're threatened, if they're told to. No, she resisted. So her, her presence was an act of resistance. And so that's why I use the term withstander is people who are actually getting involved, people who are actually present, people who are actually resisting any type of injustice. Because if, if we don't do anything, if we're just standing by, it's still safe for injustice to occur. Mm. And it's not just about law enforcement. It's, it's anybody, um, especially when it comes to racial bigotry, it doesn't have, it's not just about law enforcement. It could be in the workplace. But when you pass by and you see someone um, exhibiting those, those that, that bigotry or, or bullying uh, or what have you, and you just put your head down and keep it moving, you're, you're, not, you're not present with me. You're not standing with me. And it's still safe for them. And that's what, what, she, what she did. And, and now we see so many people pulling their cameras out. Yes. It's all, sometimes it's, they're, they're doing it irresponsibly. Sometimes they're like, just hold the camera, step back a little bit and just record. You don't have to say anything, just record. When I'm watching on the news and I see people doing that, 
But what she's doing is she's giving people, she gave people permission to be present and to resist. And I think that's important. Well, that really is important. And and uh, police, not to focus on police, but oh, what the heck, uh, they're, 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 they're not crazy about being required to have body cameras. They don't want to be recorded. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, I must say, the, the images from that day will never be forgotten. The look of profound casualness of Derek mm-hmm. Johnson, of, uh, of Derek Chauvin, rather, as he yeah. murdered George Floyd. He just, like, no big deal. He had his hands in his pocket, what about that part of the image? What do, what does that say? Why is that important? His is just incredible being casual about murdering somebody. Yeah, that's a good question. So this is where I start to to look at the 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 subtleties um, of of whiteness mm. or white supremacy. We tend to think of white supremacy when we think of hate groups. We think of the most extreme versions of it. But white supremacy historically as an ideology is just simply the superiority in terms of quality of human of, of a human being is found in whiteness in, in white bodies, white communities, white culture. Um, it is this this audacity to claim space and claim bodies. So when you look at George Floyd, look at George Floyd through the lens of history not George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, through the lens of history. Not just that he's a, 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 a white guy with a knee on a black man's neck. Look at his posture and then think about his, historically the confidence right. that you have to have mm. for an, an audience around you and a camera on you to have a knee on a man's neck as he begs, he says, I can't breathe. And at some point you had to have felt life leave this man's body underneath yes. you. Yes. Unless you, you're just that um, dehumanize yourself. Interesting. But, and, and the fact that he could be that casual, boy, that says a heck of a lot about... It's, it, Go ahead. I was going to say, it's, it's, the, it's the, the, this idea of, of him being a part of or having this membership or as uh, some would say, owning this property yep. called whiteness. Like whiteness as property or, or as a membership. And it gives you this confidence that you can, you can do, you can be, you can occupy space, you can say things that, that others may not be willing to say. There's a confidence that comes with that. This is your place. Mm. I'm not saying this is, these are, these are conscious thoughts he's having. Right, right. I'm saying it's it's built into the, the the fabric of this of this nation that whether you're black, Asian, an Im- uh, a Latino immigrant, sure. uh, indigenous, there's a, a feeling of we're visiting. We're 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 not we're not at home. There's there's that in, in the back of the mind, but I don't I don't think many white folks have that concern. Like this is home. And so this idea of claiming space, um, but also claiming bodies, and historically, it, that's been tied. 
And it, it does seem like these days with the 2022 election on us, uh, there's a lot of not so subtle whites saying, hey, this is our home. This is not your home. You're an mm -hmm. invader. They call it an invasion, which just, I, I just, the, the racism is phenomenal, but they don't even, I don't think they even understand it. For those mm -hmm. who may have just tuned in, our guest today is Phil Allen, who's got a new book, The Prophetic Lens, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency, from MLK to Dar Darnella Frazier. 14-year-old Emmett Tiller was murdered by a mob. In 1955, there weren't mm -hmm. any cameras to record the horrible lynching, but his his mother insisted on an open casket. Oh, I can't imagine to show the world the ugly reality the white culture didn't want exposed. She insisted that the world see it. We do have the film of the Birmingham, Alabama police loosing dogs and water cannons on protesters. That's in our collective memory today too. That film. The power of images tell a story. What did Martin Luther King and other leaders learn about this power? And how did he use what he learned to address and to curate the narrative as it progressed? So Dr. King, so let me, let me just to mention, go back to Emmett Till, yeah. being the catalyst for the civil rights movement, actually. That picture um, by David Jackson um, at the request of Emmett's, of Mamie Till, that picture it, it was the catalyst for the civil rights movement. Mm. That was one of the primary motivators um, for even what motivated Rosa Parks um, when she talked about being tired. Um, Dr. King understood the context. In other words, you can't fight and win with physical power. We don't have enough resources. Mm. <laughs> we don't have the guns. We don't have the, the, the majority of the people. We don't, we don't have that. So Dr. King used that violence, that passion, that, um, that hate. He used it against those white mobs in the South. And he understood that the rest of the nation, many people across the nation and the, the globe for all that matter, the, the, the world, did not really understand or, or believe mm. the extent of the violence in the South. Mm -hmm. So the film producer, Dr. King, <laughs> took advantage of the cameras capturing the violence to the point where they would sometimes cancel a demonstration if they knew there wasn't gonna be mob violence or cameras. So the only resource they had was to take advantage of the resources that were already coming to, to the scene. That would be the, the networks, the TV networks and their camera, cameramen, and that would be the violence of the white mobs. Right. So the resources for those in the South, the black folks in the South, the resource was their bodies. Mm. Their collective body was the resource. And what they did was they allowed their, they, they used their bodies, go into spaces, peacefully demonstrate, knowing it would cause tension. Not cause tension, it would expose the tension. Uh -huh. The tension was already there. 
And the cameras, all the cameras needed to do was be on. Wow. And that and that was at the beginning of the of the uh of of television. That was television hadn't been around True. long. And um you talk about reality TV and, and people being glued to the television to see what was happening. Um and Dr. King had the foresight to um to take advantage of that. And I do think a lot of protests and demonstrations have known ever since then you gotta have a camera there you know if the media doesn't pick up on it it's like it didn't happen but yeah. he, he understood what what worked uh what what attracted the media and and certainly violent racist attacks are nothing new <laughs> they've been with yeah. us pretty much forever more than 4,400 African-American men, women, and children were hanged, burned alive, shot, drowned, beaten to death by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. Uh, and there were big crowds that gathered. Until now, there hasn't been any national memorial acknowledging the victims of these racial terror lynchings. But now, on a six-acre site, atop a rise overlooking Montgomery, uh, the National Lynching Memorial is there. It's seen as a sacred place for truth-telling and reflection about racial terror in America and its legacy. While hardly any of the atrocities were captured on camera, the new museum exposes people who make the trip there to the horror. What about cameras? How are they unique at telling and transmitting the story more than, I mean, I've seen pictures of the... Uh, the the uh, monuments there, the uh, um, the names of people, the individuals. It's pretty impressive. But how are cameras unique at trans and at transmitting and telling the story? Yeah, great question. Um, in in the book, I talk about I make that distinction. I had a conversation with a professor of mine, um, and we talked about still images. He was saying, "Don't forget about still images, uh -huh. um, still shots." And I said, that's, that's true. And I wanted to include that. But the, the difference is, with still images, much is left up to my imagination as to context. What, hap what, what happened before, what happened afterwards. And then I can interpret, I can project onto that, that picture. Um, not, not that it's not, these images don't capture right. a, a lot, but it's still some, some, some things that could be missing. And I think that's where video cameras come into play. Because that video can tell me the duration. How long did this thing last? That video can tell me, can, can, can show me more context as to who's present. Right. The video can, can, can get me, help me to... to the, the still shots, I see Derek Chauvin's knee on Derek, on George Floyd's neck, the video, I hear George Floyd saying, I can't breathe. The video, I hear the pain and I hear him saying, mama, mama. The still shots can't pick that up. And the still shots don't tell me nine minutes and what, nine minutes and 46 seconds? I don't know. So the video images add another dimension. They add layers to it that, that could, could help me, my interpretation of what's happening in that, in that moment. Hmm. 
God, again, I can't imagine why so many police don't want video cameras. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, yeah. when, when you first saw the video footage, it makes it, it, it it's personal for you. The, you saw the look in Derek Chauvin's eyes as he knelt on the neck. It transported you back almost two decades to an unsettling exchange you personally had with the New York City police. Tell us about that connection, please. Yes. So when I watched the video, it took me about 10 days to figure out why. Because I'd seen other, I saw Alton Sterling's, Alton Sterling's video when he he was shot, um, Philando Castillo. Um, I saw the video with Eric Garner. I saw these videos Mm. and Mm -hmm. they were disturbing. But this was a different feeling in my body. It, it and it, it wouldn't leave me for days. It took about ten days, and there would be times I w- I would randomly just break down in tears. Um, I'd be in my apartment and just be sad for days, and I tried to figure out what why what is what is I thought maybe it was the proximity of the video, but Alton Sterling was it was up close and personal too, and I and it hit me. My body remembered 20 years ago when a police officer pulled us over. And it was like the third time I'd been profiled twice in my own neighborhood, once while walking to the bus stop in my neighborhood. I'd lived there for over a year. Um, And all it took was a white person calling the police saying, I don't recognize it. I don't recognize this guy walking in our neighborhood. And the police comes. Um, This last time, though, the the police officer pulled us over, wouldn't tell us why. Um, I think they they thought we were um, selling drugs. I lived across the street from some projects, but also next to luxury high-rise buildings in Manhattan. That's just kind of the makeup of of the area, Upper West Side. And so they were watching the projects to see if there was any, you know, to, to see about any drug drug deals. And me and two of my buddies were going out to a party. He picked me up and they pulled us over and wouldn't tell us, didn't tell us why um, they pulled us over. So I'm in the back seat and I said, make sure you get his badge number, name and badge number. And I guess that set him off. Yeah. And, and he made us get out of the car. Now he's being belligerent. He's angry. Um, I have a right to say, make sure you get his badge number. Yeah. But I challenged his authority. So now we're going back to this this um, white supremacy thing. I challenged his authority. White supremacy coupled with having a badge, having a symbol of authority on his uniform, too. And he pulls us out of the car, out of the car and he he's staring at me. And the, and the look on George Floyd, uh, on Derek Chauvin's face in that video, that was the look. That, that was what I saw in that police officer. That's what that's what it took me back to. This, he was staring at me, with and he had the he wasn't as relaxed as George Floyd. I mean, as as Derek Chauvin, but he was he had this hate, this anger, staring at me as if he was daring me to do something to give him a reason. And I just stared back at him. I wouldn't drop my head. And he said, he said, "You want my badge number? You want my name?" He said, "I could take you in for whatever I want, and there's nothing you can do about it." But when he did that, it reminded me of, in high school, the same look, playing in a basketball game, and this white guy looks at me, 
And I guess I was playing, playing him too physically. And he looks at me and says, get off of me, nigga. And he stared at me. And I stared at him. And, um, and he figured he could get away with that. And he figured he could get away with it. And it was the same look, that stare. And he got away with it until it was a timeout. And, and, and I, I unapologetically smacked him in the face as I went to the bench and got a technical foul. And then he tried to say he didn't do anything. But that look is what did it for me when I saw George, uh, that video of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. I kept see. I saw his eyes and it took me back 20 years and it took me about 10, 10 days to two weeks to figure out what was going on. My body remembered my mind had to catch up. And that's, and that's, and let me say this, that's, that, that is, that's something we need to pay attention to, especially when we're watching these videos that collectively as African-Americans, I'm only going to speak for African-Americans. There's a, there's a collective memory, not just mm. cognitively, but bodily. Our nervous systems remember the events from civil rights movement, the lynchings, the, the images of lynchings, the stories that were told to us, passed on to us of what happened during those days of Jim Crow. Our bodies remember that. Our nervous systems are triggered because it, our bodies hold those memories intergenerationally. And so when people wonder, even with George Floyd, why would he get, you, you don't know what his body was remembering, the, the, the anxiety that he exhibited just getting into a police car. You don't know what he experienced in the past. And people you know, think that you're supposed to just be relaxed as you're being handcuffed <laughs> or handled a certain way. Supposed, your body's supposed to just be relaxed. No, your body naturally will tense up. And when that happens, what is it triggering in that individual? What trauma is, are, are, traumas are they, they carrying in their bodies? That's a whole other conversation, but... Yeah, that's what that video reminded me of. It was 20, 20 years ago. And, and you're, years. You're, you're reminding me, a, a good friend of mine who happens to be black was stopped for speeding on a highway. He was probably speeding. But what he did, his reaction was to immediately put his hands, both hands on the door. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because that way the police officer couldn't have an excuse to say he was reaching for a gun or whatever, some mm -hmm. damn thing mm -hmm. like that. Ah, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, uh, author Phil Allen about his new book, The Prophetic Lens. Very interesting. The Camera and Black Moral Agency, from MLK to Darnella Frazier. And, of course, agency means, you know, our ability to do things. And an mm -hmm. interesting uh, choice of words in there. And And you say that, Blackness is not only a skin culture and a culture, but it's also a space in between. What, mm. what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Yes. Um, so let me, let me say this about being in a liminal space or having this liminal existence. It's not exclusive to the black community. So I don't want people to think that it's, when I say this in-between space, is only for black folks. I think if you're any marginalized group, if you're any group of color, um, your sexuality, um, what have you, women um, can, can, can relate to this being in between. So for blackness, when I talk about being in between, 
here's where we're seen. We're seen as athletes. We're seen in terms of celebrities. We're seen whenever we can perform, especially when the body is involved. When we can perform, we're seen. Um, but we get at the same time, our humanity is not seen. Um, we're seen when we can be utilized, when, when, when there's a, a, a purpose for utility, when we provide something, a service, we're seen. But you can walk into a space and feel invisible. A white, you can walk into white spaces and feel absolutely invisible, especially um, your humanity. I'll give you a couple of examples these aren't major but they're consistent throughout my life like they happen all the time <laughs> when you're in a space and people assume you're the help you work there right um no uniform no nothing i've i've been the preacher i've been the pastor of a, of a wedding with a black suit and a bow tie formal wedding and someone saw me in the restroom and thought that I was the attendant that gave out the right. paper towels so they can dry their hands. And he asked me a question. And when I told him I didn't know, because initially I thought it was an innocent question, he stared at me and looked me up and down as if, what do you mean you don't know? Like this look of, of surprise on his face. And he looked me up and down and then he realized I didn't work at the country club. And then he just walked out really fast. And then he, he, he couldn't look at me the rest of the, the, rest of the uh, wedding. While, even while I was standing up, waiting for the bride to come forward, I glanced over at him. Every time I looked over at him, he turned, he turned away because he knew what he was doing. And that happens all the time. Well, maybe so, that's a good thing. Maybe people, you know, white, white people are starting to realize, oh, my goodness, I made these assumptions and that was a little bit racist. And I didn't even know it. Nah, it, it's, it's, it's tiring and draining. But here's the other part. Here's the more serious part about being unseen. The, 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 the violence, the, the experiences that we have in our community. So, so what George, if, if there was no camera, right. um, like you said earlier, that would be brushed under the rug. And it would be a narrative told about George Floyd. Um, and people would believe it. And that would be it. Right. The same thing with Rodney King. If there was no camera True. on the balcony, that guy on the balcony in that apartment complex that I'm familiar with, actually, um, that complex, if he wasn't there, hidden, they would have a narrative about Rodney King. And it would be brushed under the rug, and it would be no big deal. But it's that violence. It's that part that's unseen. It's, it's the, 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 the legacy of redlining that has created these social conditions in our communities, in many of our communities, not all of our communities, but many of our communities, what they call the urban community. Uh, we might say it out there, we might say the hood, but that was produced. That's not because black folks are lazy or we're not, we're not intelligent enough or we don't have uh, the will. Look at all that we've been through historically. That was produced. Those social conditions are produced. Oh, yeah. So the things that happen in that community 
other than the stereotypes that are projected on uh, in film and, and television and what have you, there are things that are going on that are unseen. So when I say unseen, I mean both our humanity is not always seen. Our bodies are oftentimes, but our humanity is not seen, mm-hmm. but also our experiences. Because you know, I saw one statistic a few years ago where 64% of white Americans can go their entire lives and not have meaningful interaction with black people. When you think about all across this country, the rural areas, small towns, sure. you know, areas where there's just not many black people at all, they can literally go their whole lives and their only their 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 knowledge of, of the black community is what they see on television. And so if that's the case, there's so much that's unseen. And we live in that tension. We live in that in that in that middle that middle middle area. Oh uh, yeah. That is true. And and people, as you know, if, if they don't know something, if they you know, if they don't experience it, they get fearful sometimes, and fear, of course, lends itself to hate. But once people know uh that <laughs> somebody they say, oh no, it's wrong, but but not knowing and I think I'm, I'm getting the sense that cameras in general and video cameras in particular can break through that and show the, the humanity, show the humanity. And this, I mean, Hollywood is a big influence on who we are as, as a country. Anti-black violence caught on camera has a pretty long history, well before George Floyd's recent murder, stretching back to the dawn of motion pictures there were films like Birth of a Nation, which Woodrow Wilson liked quite a bit and had shown at the White mm-hmm. House. Gone mm-hmm. with the Wind, The Green Mile, Avatar, which I, I was uncomfortable with that movie, I must say. You hold such movies responsible for the erasure of black humanity and its dignity, decency, and inherent hospitality. Please say more about that. Yeah, I, I hold the decision makers in the film, film industry responsible. Um, representation matters. Stories told, our stories told by us matters. Um, you go back to Birth of a Nation and this, this narrative, to use that word again, was created. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't say created. I think it was always there, even during slavery. It was reified by this film. Yeah. And this, this narrative of the dangerous black man, particularly black man, and this this desire for white women sexually. Right. And so you have that narrative and you have the this the the messiah-like figure, collective figure of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. And white men have to save this country. And we still hear that language today about oh, yeah. saving our country, taking our country back. And you often want to ask the question from who? Who are you saving it from and who are you saving it for? And who's we? Yeah. But that, na- that, that story in 1915 started that narrative. And if you watch the film, I watched most of it or half of it. I couldn't stand to watch too much of it. Yeah. But even, even the way they depicted black men and women, it was almost like um, they were deranged, that there was something demonic a- about them. It was you know, white people in blackface oftentimes. Sure. But that, pres- that, that, that was what was presented to white people 
ordinary white people throughout the, and then to have the, the president showed in the White House just kind of co-signs it, it, it um, puts a stamp of approval on it. And now, now years later, decades later, we still deal with film that blatantly and subtly continues those narratives, those stereotypes. Yes. And I have I have plenty of friends um, in the, in the, in Hollywood, writers, directors, you know, plenty of filmmakers. Uh, I know quite a few people in the industry, and I hear the stories, the stories that the camera is not going to catch necessarily unless someone was recording in the room. Uh, audio or video, but the stories of black folks fighting to tell their stories accurately because white folks who have more decision-making power, more clout, wants to say certain things or present certain things in the film and black folks like, nah, I wouldn't say it like that. We wouldn't say that. Or you're playing off a stereotype. That's not most, most of us wouldn't you know, react that way. But that's battles going on behind the scenes, behind the camera. And so while we, there needs to be change, continued progress in front of the camera, there still has to be progress made behind the cameras. Who's telling the stories? From what angle? What agenda? Other than profit. And, and certainly that narrative of which you speak uh, is one that uh, keeps it going. It keeps it going. And it makes the the truth far less visible and that's why uh the importance of video cameras in the hands of a whole bunch of people democratizing the camera is really important and can be prophetic for those who may have just tuned in the book is called the prophetic lens the camera and black moral agency from mlk to donella frazier our guest is its author uh, phil allen um and Curious, at the same time as Birth of a Nation's D.W. Griffith, there was Oscar Michaud changed the game uh, with his presence in creativity as a writer, director, and producer. He also put different players in front of the camera. Tell us a bit about this underappreciated trailblazer. Yeah, I, I actually, when you say underappreciated, I didn't know about Oscar Michaud until in the past yeah. year, year or so. But what 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 he did was he was being he was prophetic he was spike lee before there was spike lee yeah. he wanted he wanted to show a different side of african americans um that that kind of was similar to his own journey um starting from nothing and working his way up to being able to purchase land to being able to have his own business um i mean he just he just accomplished so much and so for him it was important to have a window into that part of black life because not only will it show it's about showing the truth, but it's, it's getting black people to also see themselves in a different light because what we, what we don't think about is how much we internalize messaging from films. Ah, yes. Even when the messaging is false, but positive about us, you know, you, you tell me something enough about me that's good, I'll start to believe it, <laughs> right? Even if, even, though, even though I may know, yeah, that's not really me, but, but if I hear it and see it enough time, I'll start to believe it. I'll internalize that. And so I think it was just as important for Black people to see themselves in that light as it was for white people to see themselves in their life. But it was not easy, as you can imagine. 
there were battles he had to fight to to get those stories told. So I think um, I'm glad I was introduced to, to him and I still want to learn more about him. But he was a pioneer. He was doing the things before um, we could even imagine in filmmaking. He was fighting those battles then and trying to, to tell a different narrative. Well, we need people like that. Then there's BET, Black Entertainment Television, TV One, mm -hmm. and other black networks. What impact do you think that they've had on the narratives that reveal who black people really are and what blackness means? How effective have they been? Yeah, I think they've been been uh, necessary. BET, I grew up on BET. When I was in high school and, and into college, you know, BET, you, you saw black people in, in different in different ways, different lights. Um, you might see doctors and, and you might see talk show hosts and you saw, you saw the music videos for sure. Um, I, my first college, my first college televi tele um, televised basketball game that I played in was on BET. I played for North Carolina A&T, HBCU, and we played against Howard University on BET. Uh, so I had friends back home that got a chance to see me play and family got a chance to see me play. So BET, I, I think, has, has always been... Um, uh, such a powerful force for, for African-Americans. Now there, you know, my question would be parent companies because when parent companies get involved, then you may have different agendas and you may have people behind the scenes, you know, profit is the, 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 the name of the game. Um, so I think any, any, any company can be compromised. I'm not saying BET was, um, but there was a time when I didn't watch a, a whole lot of BET um, for, for a number of years, I just wasn't interested in some of the content, but when I was growing up, it was valuable for me to see Donnie Simpson with video. Soul, to, to see how he carried himself, how he conducted himself, to see some of the, some of the BT news, to see us represented yeah. in the majority. That was, that blew me away because we had never seen anything like that before. So it was necessary. It was powerful. Um, you know, my own interest as I, as I got older, I may have kind of strayed a little bit away a little bit from watching as much of it, but TV one as well. TV one, um, had its, um, has its, its, its powerful, uh, impact for the community. And there are other stations that are, are being, are, bo are born and, and growing um, as we speak. So... I think it's important, but also my question would always be to keep an eye on any parent companies that may come right. into play and see what's going on there. Yeah, the real money behind it. And yeah. you, you have been involved in basketball and in churches and a whole bunch of other things. Testifying has long been a method used in churches on behalf of movements for justice. You say the camera is also a way of testifying. Can, can you help listeners who may not be familiar with that religious uh, frame, that context? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in the black community, um, and, I, and I would imagine in the Pentecostal churches in general, you, but certainly in the black community, um, not only is testimony important, people having the space to share what they go, what the Lord has brought me through. Uh -huh. That's 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 what it, uh -huh. it, it, it comes down to. What the Lord has brought me through, um, but even when the preacher's preaching, 
when the, that, that call and response in the black church, mm-hmm. when the preacher preaches, there's an expectation that what he or she is saying resonates. And if it resonates and, and, and it, it's, it's touching your life and, and you can, you can relate to this, there's this response. Amen. Right. Hallelujah. I'm in agreement with you. I see you. I hear you. Yes. This is what happened. These are the things that are going on. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So the camera in a, in a metaphor, in kind of a metaphorical mm-hmm. sense is testifying. See, if the camera, if we were to personify the camera, the camera is saying, especially when it's published on social media, right. the camera is saying, look, see, I told you, I told you what's going on. I told you it was happening. Look, you don't believe me? You didn't believe what they were saying? Come see. I got it right here. Right? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that the camera as this person and it's, it's, it's content is testifying of a truth that many tried to erase. Absolutely. Erasure. One of the most important tools regarding the use of historical knowledge is erasure. The chosen mm-hmm. official narrative uh, requires that certain events be buried, made invisible. You, you don't want people to see that. Otherwise, the public might actually learn and exert some pressure for change. Political powers need us to not know how mm-hmm. significant a role must the ever-present might the ever-present cell phone camera play in shaking this up as we move through the years ahead. So, great question. So I think it's important to understand the camera doesn't guarantee justice. Yeah, for sure. The camera, the camera can, you know, depending on whose who's hands it's in, um, doesn't necessarily guarantee truth. Mm-hmm. As we saw with Birth of a Nation. Um, but the catalog, if I caught something today on video and I published it, it goes into this catalog, I'm, I'm using the word catalog, of all the other videos. So if you think about George uh, uh, Rodney King, mm-hmm. we didn't, justice was not served there. In a civil way, financially, yes, but those officers did not, were not held accountable. So the camera, the video didn't guarantee justice. But it goes in the, in the, in the, the archives. So every person with a camera has the potential to contribute to the archives. And at some point, you can't say there's no there there. At some point, you're forced to interact with the archives. That is true. And obviously, the name of this show is Keeping Democracy Alive and the Democratization of the Camera Telling the Story, Testifying as to What's Really There, the Things We Don't Want to See. Uh, boy, that is the power of democracy. You know, there, there obviously are interests these days which want to crush democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is for sure, just as they want to crush, uh, you know, anybody that doesn't like uh, white nationalism. 
mm-hmm. you know, it's there. But but what what do you? Th- Everybody listening, no doubt about it, has a video camera in their phone. What what can people do now? I mean, the book, they can obviously uh, pick up the book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. What, what can people do? Well, I think first is I would want people to engage, not just my book, but engage history, engage, even if you would just engage the images. You go Google away. Engage history through the images and, and allow them to cause you to ask questions, to reflect, to sit even in the, the, the horror of what you might see. That's the first thing, because I think, I think we, we've, we, we don't really have a strong um, sense of history. Like you said earlier, we, we just on to the next. Oh, we just yeah. move on yeah. and we easily forget. So I, I want people to, when they read this book, Hopefully they go out and they buy it this week. When they read this book, that they engage and they reflect, that they pause. Right? Yes. And then understand the power that you have in your hands, being responsible with it too. But understand the power that you have in your hands with that camera, because the camera makes it no longer safe to, to, to to, to be unjust to be a bully, to be a bigot. The camera makes it, and you're going to have people that because the camera's out, they're going to double down. And that's okay too. Capture that too. Absolutely. The power is in your hands. They don't, you know, they're powers that be that want us to believe, oh, there's nothing we can do. We're powerless. But the power is in your hand. Fast- and one last thing. Go ahead. One last thing. Yep. One last thing. Also, I got to say this. Capture the beauty in the resiliency. I'm speaking for my, my folks, for black folks, not just the trauma. We're not just all trauma. Mm-hmm. There's a resiliency. There's a beauty as well. And we need to capture that. That's what Malcolm X did with the camera. He wanted to capture the beauty of black people and tell that story as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 